This is In Focus from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. Each episode of In Focus brings you in-depth analysis and perspective from a different corner of our global network of experts. workers, they see the poor and the politically weak has lost in this omnibus law. And this is a proof that they are sacrificial lambs whose voice had little weight. And the protests were just expression of their frustrations. But the law is a painful necessity for Indonesia and its government if they want to escape from this economic recession. Today I'm talking with Ahmad Sugarsono, our lead analyst and consultant for Indonesia country with a trillion dollar GDP, largest in ASEAN, and one that holds a lot of potential for foreign investors, but those same investors are often disappointed by the reality on the ground. The government has just passed a massive investment bill that they call the Omnibus Jobs Act, which generated riots in the capital city of Jakarta. And so we're going to talk to Ahmad about what he sees on the ground and what that new Jobs Act investment bill may mean for the country. Prime Minister of Japan, Suga, has made Indonesia's second stop on his Asia tour, his first tour outside Japan since taking office. He's landed in Jakarta, which has been seeing ongoing demonstrations starting last week, really on the back of a trip also by China's Politburo member, Wang Yi. So it seems to a lot of observers that there's a bit of a competition here going on for Indonesia's affection, not just Indonesia, but also Vietnam, of course. So can you set the scene a little bit for us? Tell us what that looks like from the ground view. Thanks, Dane. Definitely Suga's move is a good and wise one. Japan definitely needs to step up its game if it wants to compete with China in Indonesia and not lose again like they did in 2016 when Japan and China fought over who should build Indonesia's high-speed railways and President Jokowi picked China. So kudos to Suga, but there's so much that Japan needs to do. Like you just mentioned about the protests, and the protest was related to this newly passed omnibus bill. This law gives a few treats for Western and Japanese investors, but the lawmakers did not have them in mind when they rushed this law earlier this month. They had local businesses and China in mind. And of course, the lawmakers also did not have Indonesian workers in their minds as well, despite the title of the law that promotes job creation. So I think we should not be surprised with the protests that happened in Jakarta and other cities this month. It will keep on continuing. These are natural reactions towards a highly unpopular legislation that took away several advantages from millions of workers who are already suffering from the pandemic. So for workers, they see the poor and the politically weak has been, let's just say, has lost in this omnibus law. And this is a proof that they are sacrificial lambs whose voice had little weight. And the protests were just expression of their frustrations. But what they have to understand as well is that the law is a painful necessity for Indonesia and its government if they want to escape from this economic recession. So that's a great point to take up the omnibus bill. And, and let's come back to Japan, China in a moment. But 
as we know, Indonesia sometimes has been rated kind of the most protective of labor when it comes to the labor laws almost globally in terms of month severance that have to be paid, in terms of the import of foreign talent, this type of thing. And the omnibus bill, which ran to hundreds and hundreds of pages, if I'm not mistaken, (laughs) and also in theory gave the national government precedence over local governments when it came to certain things related to foreign investment, et cetera. As you say, it's been in past, watered down a little bit in the process from what we understand, but still seemingly quite generous to workers. The the figure that sticks in my mind is now you only have to pay them 19 months salary if you fire somebody as opposed to, you know, 30 plus before or something like that, which you know, maybe in relative terms to other countries, even in the region, seems still quite generous. So uh, I'm sure there's pieces in there that we should pick apart, but also talk to us a little bit about some of the other foreign investment elements of this law in terms of things that it was supposed to make easier for foreign investors in Indonesia. So Indonesia will be a bit friendlier for businesses, that's for sure, after the passage of the jobs omnibus law. The question is which businesses will benefit the most. So there are so many versions of this omnibus law out there because nobody actually has read the entirety. Let me just clarify what it is and what it is not. The omnibus law, like you said, it is a mammoth legislation in size. It has almost 1,000 pages and it amends hundreds of articles in 79 existing laws. That said, it is not a massive reform in thought. So while this law reduced several generous benefits that workers had enjoyed for 17 years, it did not radically overhaul aspects that Western and Japanese investors have long complained, such as the overly generous minimum wages and severance payments. The law simplifies the overly complicated minimum wage structure So there will no longer be a sectoral minimum wage system, but it still gives platform for minimum wage levels for each province and each city and each district. The law maintains the costly worker termination system that you just mentioned that highly values length of service, especially after the second year. What it just does, it just lowers the maximum sum that a fired worker could get. So this law is halfway of what President Jokowi promised when he got re-elected last year. So the, what I take away from that is it will be slightly better, but not kind of everything that foreign investors were hoping for, which is kind of always the case, as we know, with Indonesia, this kind of, you know, two steps forward, one step back. Mm-hmm. But but hopefully this is a step in the right direction. Now, we started off talking about, you mentioned Japan versus China, and your comment was, this was a bill really directed more so at Chinese investors. So can you just explain that a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, when the bill was first proposed, it was the president's signature solution to attract foreign investment. However, due to the pandemic and its economic consequences, it was passed as a medium to save local businesses, many of which are part of the coalition or financiers of the ruling coalition. Now, they are the first priority of this law. But after that, we have to be blunt to say that this law is made for the investors from the number one trading partner of Indonesia, and that is China, which has 
a different model than other foreign investors. And this model is preferred by the Indonesian government. And unfortunately, it is difficult for other investors to copy. Now, what is this model? Basically, it gives Indonesia and its political elites what they want on what they want, but not patronizing them on what they need to do. Like, that's the perception in Indonesia when it comes to Western and Japanese investors. Chinese investors are very good in aligning their interests with the interests of the government and the powerful players in the political landscape. These Chinese investors also do not force Indonesian partners to change operational or cultural behaviors, as long as the projects turn into providers of jobs for Chinese nationals and become recipients of Chinese machines, Chinese materials, and refined products. So the omnibus law gives ample space for Chinese blue-collar workers to flood the Chinese-backed projects on a temporary basis. It does not make it easier for Western and Japanese companies to send like their middle-level um, nationals to Indonesia. The omnibus law also eases environmental licensing standards to a point that Japanese and Westerners have issues. Again, this law was made for the smoothness of the Belts and Road Initiative that bolsters Jokowi's ambition in his tenure. Sometimes these infrastructure projects are, as I say, complicated by difficult environmental licensing issues. But now with this kind of ease, Jokowi can better push this infrastructure drive. He wants to build more roads, more bridges, more airports, more power plants. And honestly, if he wants to build more in rural regions, only the Chinese are keen to invest there. So if you go to Indonesia and you go out of the cities, what you see now are actually Chinese-made facilities. So that's an interesting point. And I'll remind our listeners that the Maritime Silk Road of the Belt was actually launched and announced in Indonesia by President Xi Jinping many years ago. Why don't we take this as kind of a microcosm? How I mean, it, the Belt and Road, as you know, gets a lot of bad press mm. uh, in many countries across the Indo-Pacific. Kind of give us a snapshot from Indonesia. How's it going? What's the reception? How successful has it been? Well, at the high level officials, business elites, it has been quite successful because the airports, the bridges, the new dams that Jokowi and his government have built so far in the last five, six years are heavily supported by China. At the ground level, of course, there is anti-Chinese sentiment because the Indonesian workers think that Chinese blue-collar workers are taking their jobs. So you have that kind of disconnect between the high level in Indonesia and the low level in Indonesia. But again, this kind of dependence on China is not ideologically, like it's not ideological or it's not like emotional from the Jokowi government. It's totally pragmatic. It is because China is the one that provides, is the one that delivers, and it is the one that meets the standards of the Indonesian political system and Indonesian politicians. These investors from China are very, very good in picking partners. Now, the evidence is 
at the Morawali Industrial Park in Central Sulawesi province that is planned to be the hub of electronic vehicle production in Asia. Now, these Chinese investors are working with companies related to Indonesia's top politicians and decision makers who can move mountains for them in getting licenses and permits that could take years for other investors to obtain. So what you see is Indonesia is comfortable with China because China is not like pushing or trying to impose their values or their laws or their best practices on Indonesia. There's no debate on ethics when it comes to Chinese investment. And they can be open for what China wants, which is more space for the Chinese workers, more space for Chinese materials, more space for uh, Chinese machines. Right. So I hear you saying that kind of integrity takes a backseat or transparency, probably a better word, takes a backseat. And I assume also in many cases the Chinese Belt and Road players, also state-owned typically in many cases, will be partnering with uh, local Indonesian state-owned entities, which is kind of a like meaning a like, which is probably in a way easier for, in some ways, for both parties, right? Yeah. I mean, for a lot of the elites in Indonesia, China has better, let's just say, cultural understanding. So it's more culturally fit for Indonesian elites to accept Chinese investment. Right. So one of the places that we've seen or heard about cooperation anyway between both sides is in the field of vaccines. So I think that's a good starting point to lead into the topic of how Indonesia has managed the pandemic. Or maybe we just focus on Java and how that's been managed there. But correct me if I'm wrong, there is a cooperation agreement between at least, I think, one Chinese company and an Indonesian company to produce vaccines for Indonesia. Is that not correct? Yes, correct. And more. China is really playing a crucial role for the Jokowi government's COVID management. Indonesia is, as they say, the epicenter of COVID in Southeast Asia. No other Southeast Asian country has more cases and deaths than Indonesia. That said, the president and the government have refused to impose a robust lockdown on economic grounds. And his normal policy basically is promoting businesses to operate almost as usual, while depending on the silver bullet of mass vaccination. And Jokowi prefers Chinese pharma companies to do human trials and on Indonesians so that Indonesia could get easy access to vaccines. Now, vaccination for essential workers even has been slated for next month with the arrival of vaccines for 9 million people from three different Chinese producers. And then he hopes 260 million Indonesians, all of them can be vaccinated before the anniversary of Indonesia's pandemic in March. So China definitely plays a role in Jokowi's world at the moment. He looks at China for his infrastructure drive. He looks at China for the solution for this pandemic. So for him, China is very important and other investors somehow cannot offer what China has offered to him. Ahmad, thank you. That was really great. I think a great synopsis of the bilateral relationship between the two and in all its facets, both good and bad, and also what it means for other investors. So thank you for that. And uh, hopefully we'll come back in a couple of weeks and maybe take the pulse of how the omnibus bill is going. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Dean. 
If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode of In Focus, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And be sure to subscribe to our other podcasts as well, such as The Global Insight, our fortnightly panel discussion exploring the impact of the most pressing issues on global business. All of our podcasts are available wherever you listen. Just search Control Risks. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we are helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com.